Well, during this past story event week that the Christian Union have been putting on, that we've heard about from Abby, a great deal of emphasis has been placed, and rightly so, on asking, is the Christian story true? Are the unique claims of Jesus Christ to be believed? Is the Bible to be trusted? Does the biblical worldview have credibility? But of course there is another question that hovers around once we ask that question. And it is the question, the related question, related to the question of truth. Does it work? And does it matter? Does belief in Jesus Christ make any significant difference to our own lives and to society and the world around? What I want to say this morning is somewhat scary to say, but it is this. The Christian church is meant to be the laboratory that demonstrates that Christianity works. And I say that with some trepidation. Skeptics are meant to look at a local church like ours and to say, well, this is hardly a perfect community, yet there is enough different about their relationships and their values and their attitudes that begins to convince me of the truth of the Christian story. I was interested to read recently of a social worker working in one of the inner London boroughs, a guy who is Marxist by conviction, and he was asked by a Christian what difference the Christian churches of his borough made as far as he was concerned as a social worker. And his answer was, if you mean the public face of the church, its pronouncements and its projects and initiatives, then I probably have to say it doesn't make much difference. But he went on to say this, if you took away all the small kindnesses and all the neighbourly acts that Christians do, visiting the sick, shopping for the housebound, befriending the stranger, then, he said, this community would fall apart. Towards the end of the New Testament, one of the writers, the Apostle John, makes this remarkable statement. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Echoing the words of Jesus himself, that this is how you will know that these groups, this group of people are my disciples because of their love for one another. Put starkly, if the Christian community is not a community of social transformation and compassion, then we have every right to say 
I don't think much of your foundational story. Now, over the past weeks, we've been looking together at a particular biblical image of God, the image of God as a shepherd, an image that takes on uniquely a human face in his son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we come to perhaps the most famous story that Jesus told about shepherding. It is the story of a shepherd who had, somewhat conveniently, a hundred sheep, who, when one night he was counting in his, his sheep into the fold, realized that one annoying sheep was missing. So he promptly leaves the 99, and at considerable cost and danger and risk, maybe working through the night, he searched and he found the wayward sheep. This is the simplest of all Jesus' parables. God cares for every individual. Enough to focus his whole attention on the one seems to be the meaning of the parable. But this story, as Evelina read it, is part of a much larger section, really the whole of Matthew 18 which together is a sustained reflection on what it actually means for a community of disciples to reflect God's shepherd's heart. And this is our task this morning. I want us to look at these first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 18. We'll look at it fairly briefly. And... The first thing that Jesus says is that it begins with a radical change of attitude within each one of us. If you have Matthew 18 open, look at the first verse, this very unpromising way to begin. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God. How are you to rank us, Jesus? Which one of us is top disciple as far as you're concerned? It's a question that's going to be repeated in the gospel. And of course, it's a deeply self-obsessed question. Maybe some of them were struggling with the fact that not long before, Peter had made a confession that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus had said to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Maybe some of them were struggling with what Jesus said to Peter. Maybe some of them were struggling with the fact that only three of them were selected to go up the Mount of Transfiguration, a story recorded just before this. Maybe some were reflecting on the fact that Jesus had predicted his death, and they were wondering, well, who's going to take the leadership when Jesus goes? Well, whatever prompted the question, it was a question that clearly bugged them. And it is a question that bugs and shapes and drives our culture as well. How do we rank? How do we compare ourselves with others around us? How can we jostle for influence where we want to be influential? 
What image of togetherness and competence can I create to try and impress? We invent our league tables and we have our New Year's <coughs> honours lists and we talk about people getting onto the celebrity circuit and we have our own little versions of that sort of thing. And Jesus answers their question in a way that is as simple as it is memorable. For he calls a little child into the disciples' midst. Somebody perhaps he's just been talking to. And he invites the child to stand in the middle. And no doubt Jesus pauses as two little apprehensive eyes look at the crowd around. And then Jesus says these words, Truly I tell you, unless you change, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your question, says Jesus, your question about greatness is utterly misplaced. Kingdom life begins with a radical conversion of values. Compassion begins by a radical reorientation of lives where essentially we have been focusing on ourselves and instead, like this little child, we live with an unself-consciousness and a lack of concern about status. I think Jesus' primary focus wasn't so much on commending some childlike quality, innocence or simplicity or trust or dependence, I think the focus was on the simple fact that children in that Jewish society were clearly the weakest and the lowest. And that seems to be confirmed by the next verse, when in verse 4 Jesus says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness, true freedom to begin to love is found when we are willing to appear little. And here, of course, is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. When we are willing to act as the least, we are greatest in God's eyes. Now, of course, it's easy to say this, isn't it? <laughs> uh, in principle, we have no problem with this. Until, of course, we are the one left at work when everybody else has gone. And we are the one who has to follow through with all the matters arising. It's all very simple. We all agree with this until we are the one who at the end of a long day at church is left counting the offering. It's very easy for us to agree with this and yet to sit with somebody who is very unresponsive out of kindness, is hard. It's very easy to agree with this until we give ourselves in service and we're made to feel little as a result. I very much appreciate the words that I read recently. To take up one's cross daily is to let a particular tree 
press upon our actual shoulders on a local road within a specific community. And then he wrote, many who are ambitious to oversee others rarely envision how mundane is the place in which their greatness will land. Now, of course, this does not mean that we are to be unrealistic about the gifts and the opportunities and the privileges and the responsibilities that may come our way. But it does mean that we are so content to be a child of God as the greatest privilege of all that being little or being great in the eyes of the world is of absolutely no <coughs> consequence. And Jesus goes on in verse 5 to give a telltale test of how true this is in our lives. And it is a very disturbing test. He says, what will show how you face this issue is who and what time you are given to welcoming the least. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Like a number of you here I know, I've been for many years deeply impressed with the work of the L'Arche communities started in France. Communities that devote themselves to care for childlike adults with severe learning difficulties. I want you just to listen for a moment to the diary of this man, Henry Nouan, who gave up his prestigious lectureship at Harvard University to work for people in the eyes of the world who are little. He says this, Today I spent a wonderful day with a group from Cork in Ireland. During evening prayers, we sang simple songs and we listened to Danny, one of the folk from Cork who had great difficulty in reading. And then Danny prayed, I love you, Jesus. I do not reject you even when I feel nervous, even when I get confused. Jesus, I love you with my arms, with my legs, with my hand, with my heart. I love you. I do not reject you, Jesus. And as he prayed, writes Henri Nouan, I looked at his beautiful, gentle face and saw without any veil or cover his agony as well as his love. Who would not respond to a prayer like this? And suddenly I felt a deep desire to invite all my students from Harvard to sit with me in this circle. Those who welcome the little ones welcome me. How willing are we to be like a little child? And secondly, a truly pastoral community 
says Jesus here, is one where particular care is offered to the vulnerable. And if you look on to verse 6 down to verse 10 of Matthew 18, we come, and I'm sure you braced yourself as Evelina read them, to some of the severest words of Jesus in the Gospels. If you are nervous about talking about divine judgment, well, here is a very uncomfortable context in which it is found. For what happens in this section is that talk of little children now changes. A different Greek word is used. And it becomes a metaphor of all, quote, little people. The people society does not consider important. And sadly, at times, the church too. The poor, the dying, the frail, the slightly odd, the outsider, the foreigner. And Jesus says these words. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And here, if you like, is the bottom line for a community that wants to reflect and live out the shepherd care of God. Do we ever cause the weak among us to stumble in their walk with God? Paul says a similar thing in Romans 14. Be very, very careful, says Jesus Christ, in how you treat those who are vulnerable because of doubt. Be very careful how you treat those who are embarrassed with their lack of education, with those who are baby Christians, with those who falteringly are trying to work out what their gifts and their ministries are, those who are struggling with temptation and those who are struggling with identity. And I have to say that over the years, I have occasionally shuddered at the way supposedly mature Christians have criticised have ignored, have withheld encouragement, have refused to forgive, and so have hindered the walk of some weak and young brother or sister in Christ. Jo Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian who wrote just a short generation after Jesus, talks at one point in his history about a group of angry Galileans who drowned supporters of Herod by putting millstones around their neck. And Jesus says here, there is a fate worse than that for those who are brazen in their insensitivity to the weakest brothers and sisters in the Christian community. 
Woe to the world at large, verse 7, says Jesus, for the way it crushes the weak, for the way it ignores the children of Calais, for the way that it is complicit sometimes in the trafficking of young children. Woe even more, says Jesus, for the church whenever it sinks to that level with the world. Following Jesus, believe you me, is at best difficult. Don't make it any harder, says Jesus. The saying is true, is it not? They may forget what you have said, but they will never forget how you have made them feel. And continuing with this theme of stumbling just for a moment, part of that care will be self-care. And so Jesus goes on to warn in verse 8 and 9 that if there is something in our present lifestyle that is making us stumble morally, spiritually, then we must adopt an urgent and radical solution. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. The awake groups have been looking at this very passage this week in the parable Sermon on the Mount. And here is this colourful, exaggerated, hyperbolic language. Jesus is not <coughs> calling, of course, for a literal self-maiming, but he is calling for a ruthless moral self-denying in those areas where we know we are weak. And it can, of course, involve everything, from making sure we stay away from certain parties to putting a computer block on a gambling site or a pornographic site or breaking with a friendship or fasting once a week or whatever. Do something radical, says Jesus. And then finally and briefly, we come to the parable of the lost sheep. A truly pastoral community cares for those who drift away. Notice, those of you who know your Bibles well, that the context here is different to the famous parables of Luke 15, where the stories of the lost sheep, same story of course, the lost coin, the lost son are told. In that context, Jesus was defending his welcome of tax collectors and sinners, spiritually lost people, in the face of criticism from the religious authorities. Here he retells the story in a very different context. He is talking to his disciples. He's going on in verse 15 to talk about discipline within the church. And here is the story retold where the straying sheep is a disciple who for whatever reason has wandered from the messianic community. And just as the shepherd risks so much to find the one wayward sheep, so we are called not to despise these little ones, but to lovingly search and to seek. It is a powerful image of how every brother or sister matters to God and therefore should matter to us. Notice 
how this is underlined in two interesting ways. First, we are told in verse 10 that each of these little ones has an appointed angel with direct access to God. The point being that if angels are this concerned for those who are wandering, how much more should God's redeemed people be concerned? And secondly, the point is underlined by the shepherd rejoicing over the one wandering sheep that is found. It's not that the 99 are not being cared for, but there is particular joy in the heart of God when restoration occurs. Of course, we're meant to hear here again a backdrop of Ezekiel 34. Woe to you, shepherds! You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. A few years ago, there were three independent pieces of research done on churchgoers who had drifted from the church. One was a set of research done in the UK with the provocative title, non Gone But Not Forgotten. The second was done in New Zealand under the title, Churchless Faith. And I'm grateful to you and Branda for lending me a copy of his book. A similar bit of work was done, particularly with young people in the US, with the title, You Lost Me. And I have to say, as I've read these three books over the years, it has not been comfortable reading. And one of the pieces of uh, narrative that came out, particularly of the second research, was the number of leavers who said when interviewed that no one came from the church to ask in an uncritical and gentle and pastoral way why they had left church. I think of the words at the end of James. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. A truly pastoral community reaches out to those who have drifted away. And I wonder if there's anyone who comes to mind as I say these words. Let me end with three brief observations. First, this vision that Jesus is painting of a community of disciples reflecting the shepherd heart of God is a challenge not just for the leadership, but for all of us. Matthew 18 makes it clear that this sort of care is the duty of all disciples of his. One writer says, 
that we must not learn just to speak, as Luther did, of the priesthood of all believers, but forgive the rather ugly word, the pastorhood of all believers. All of us have a responsibility to welcome the least, to offer hospitality, to encourage the faint-hearted, to care for each other. All of us are called to pray for the wanderer. All of us can reach out to those who have drifted away. This is what following the Good Shepherd means. And second, all of us here are too much like the disciples, asking the question, who is the greatest? We are incurably turned in on ourselves. And without the grace of God, we will never begin to realise this vision. It only happens as we open our lives again this morning to the love of the shepherd God filling us, pouring his love into our hearts by his spirit. And third, where I began. We do not seek to be this sort of community primarily to impress the world. We do it because we want to be a community shaped in the image of the shepherd God. But I think we would all agree that there are few things likely to turn a sceptical Scotland back to considering the claims of Jesus Christ than a community where true compassion is displayed. I wanted to end this sermon with a brilliant illustration of a church that's showing this. And I found myself rebuked. Why look elsewhere? There is so much here that is good. There are people here who give themselves to praying for the wandering sheep. After a service, I often see groups of people praying for each other. I visit somebody and find two people have already visited them. There is so much good and love in this church. May it continue. And may we here in St Andrews be the reason, as a church, that people find the claims of Christianity 